The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Schizophrenia Community Radio. By listening to Schizophrenia Community Radio, you'll be joining, supporting, and gaining strength from the schizophrenia community. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to Episode 7 of Schizophrenia Community Radio. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician retired from medical practice. Our topic today is early access to treatment for schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is a serious mental illness. Um, Schizophrenia in 2012 was reported by 359,000 Canadians over the age of 15 who told Statistics Canada that they had been given the diagnosis of schizophrenia or psychosis. Schizophrenia affects men and women with equal frequency. Schizophrenia most often appears in men in their late teens or early 20s and in women in their late 20s or early 30s. It's characterized by what's called psychotic symptoms, which involve difficulties maintaining contact with reality, such as hallucinations, hearing voices or seeing things that are not based in reality, delusions, which are distorted false beliefs and disorganized thoughts processes and false memories. Now schizophrenia interferes with a person's ability to think clearly, manage emotions, make decisions and relate to others. It impairs a person's ability to function to their normal full potential, not normal, I take that word back, their full potential when it's not treated. And research links it to many possible causes including aspects of brain chemistry and structure and genetics. Schizophrenia has no single form of treatment. The treatment is often complex and it must be individualized, all of which is why our topic, early access to treatment for schizophrenia, is so important for family caregivers and their family members and the schizophrenia community. Now, to discuss it, um, our guest is Dr. Michael Ilaf. Michael is a senior psychiatrist in the schizophrenia treatment and education program of the Health Sciences Center in Winnipeg and an associate professor of psychiatry at the University of Manitoba. He's been working with adults living with schizophrenia and related psychotic disorders for the past 34 years. From 2000 to 2014, he served as medical program director of the schizophrenia program. He's worked closely with families and individuals recovering from these illnesses. He's participated in numerous public education and information initiatives, both through the Manitoba Schizophrenia Society and in other contexts. And over the course of his career, both as a clinician and as a teacher of medical students, psychiatric residents and allied health professionals, he's emphasized the importance of respect, caring, relationships and hope in promoting recovery. And in 2010, he was honored with the Iris Award 
by the Manitoba Schizophrenia Society. So welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Great. First question for you then. Please tell us more about your life and career as a psychiatrist. Michael? Well, as you've mentioned, I'm a senior psychiatrist, which is diplomatic for saying I'm old. I have been working here in this department for 34 years. I'm what's called an adult psychiatrist, which is to say that I work with adults. It may also be true that I am an adult. Um, I have primarily been working with people with major mental illnesses, particularly psychotic disorders like schizophrenia, um, over the course of these last 34 years. Because I work in a university setting in a teaching hospital, a part of my work and my professional identity has always been that I'm a teacher. Um, I've had occasion to think about what is it that I really want to teach. I don't want to teach the content because the content is in the books or online and much more available and better organized than I am. What I want to teach more than anything else is the human side, the relationship, as you've said a moment ago, things like respect and caring, the recognition that this is a journey that people don't want, they don't ask for it, and they don't deserve it, but they're stuck with it by some accident of the functioning of the brain. Both the individual himself or herself and the family are stuck with having to live with this damned illness, which can be very, very challenging to live with. I say often to patients and families, I say to the patient that you are the manager. Your family and the professionals are assistant managers. But this is your illness. You didn't ask for it. You don't deserve it. But you're stuck with it. If you had a choice about having schizophrenia or not having it, you would choose not to have it. But that choice is not on the table. The only choice that's on the table is how do you manage it now that you got it? And you manage it, and we'll try to help you. Thank you. Very clear. Now, Michael, please tell us more about your work with families and individuals recovering from schizophrenia and psychotic disorders. Michael? One of the key words in the, in the question is recovery. What does it mean to recover? Because the recovery focus and a recovery orientation is at the heart of this work now. It was not at the heart of this work in the 1970s when I started. In the 1970s, the focus was on symptom suppression, even if that meant very heavy doses of medication. People were not expected to recover. They were not expected to do well, to function, to make relationships, to work, to volunteer, to live independently in the community. We were just coming out of the era when the diagnosis of schizophrenia led to a, essentially a life sentence to life inside of a provincial or state mental hospital. People were admitted for 30 and 40 years and died in hospital. When we moved away from institutionalization, we moved to an era of high-dose medication and symptom suppression so that people could sort of live in the community. They were in the community, but they didn't really much live. So what we've moved to is a focus on recovery and on quality of life. 
that the business of working with the individual and with the family is how can we make life better. I met with a mother and son today, and the son is in the early stages of being treated for this illness. And what I said to both of them is the question is about 2016 and about 2014. 2014 was a terrible year for you and for your family. 2015 is this transition where you had admission to hospital and you got started on treatment. The question is, can 2016 be a better year for you and for your family than 2014 was? Recovery is not cure. These are not, in 2015, these are not illnesses that are curable. These are illnesses that can be treated, that people can recover from, where recovery is defined as developing new purpose and meaning as you get past the devastating effects of these serious illnesses. You live with it. It isn't something that goes away. For most people, it's a long-term management of the illness to try to maximize recovery and quality of life. That's what I've been doing for 34 years. That leads straight into the next question I want to ask you, which is about promoting recovery. But let me put it in this way. Please tell us more about the ways you emphasize the importance of respect, caring, relationships and hope in promoting recovery from schizophrenia and psychotic disorders. How do those, all those fit together? Michael? We used to talk about schizophrenics. Joe is schizophrenic. We really have worked very hard to move away from that into what's called person-first language. Joe is a person with schizophrenia. He's a person with nearsightedness. He's a person with interest in his religious background. He's a person whose family came from this country to Canada in this year. It's one part of the self. And so I don't treat schizophrenics. I treat people, many of whom are people who live with schizophrenia. But part of it is that that's not all there is to a person. I'm interested in people. I care about people. People are endlessly fascinating and people are endlessly new. I saw a man on, on one of the inpatient units today for a consultation for a colleague who was really struggling with this guy and trying to figure out what's wrong with him and what's helpful to him. And I've been doing this, as I said, for 34 years, and this is a man who presented a new problem, and I struggled with him for an hour to try to get some understanding of what is it that he means when he uses these words in this way because he doesn't mean what anybody else might mean by those words. So this is the investment in the relationship with the person, the interest, the caring that I, I try to teach, um, that the question is, how are you going to get better? What do you want? What, how do you define your quality of life? I've, I've developed this habit lately of asking people, an informal five-point scale question. Would you say your life, not today or this week, but these days, these months, this year, 
your life is excellent, good, so-so, poor, or terrible. And for any human being, whether he or she lives with a mental illness or not, if you can say that your quality of life is excellent, that's pretty darn good. And the standards are different for people living with serious mental illness. A man that I saw today is busy, he's active, he's involved in a church community, he is involved in creative activities, he has friendships, he works part-time in a supermarket, he lives with schizophrenia, and in terms of the subjective quality of life, his life is as good as mine. Does he have what I have? No. He has different things. Does he do what I do? No, he does different things. But he has a full, rich life. He is a person. And yes, he has schizophrenia. And yes, he's on medication to decrease the most severe and acute symptoms of his schizophrenia. But also, he and I have known each other for a long time. And we sometimes go for lunch together. We didn't do that today because I was too busy and I apologized for it. But we will sometimes go over to the cafeteria and have lunch together. And because he is disabled by his illness from an economic and employment standpoint, and thank God I am not, I pay for lunch. Yes, yes, yes. Now, I'm going to stop you there only because we've run out of time for this particular segment. But I just want to reflect back to you. We asked about respect. If I can put it back to you in these terms, going out to lunch with someone and paying the check, paying the bill, is a very important everyday way of expressing respect, isn't it? It's as if we are two human beings sitting together talking over lunch. And that's exactly what we are. Yes, yes. Yes, and I also pay for lunch if I go with one of the students because I have more money than they do. <laughs> yes, God. Now we'll get on to that one later on. So, okay. as, I say, as I say, it's time to take the break. This is where we have to pay the rent. So we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Atley, and my guest is Dr. Michael Eleff. You're listening to Schizophrenia Community Radio on the Voice America Variety Channel, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat 
creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Schizophrenia Community Radio with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any suggestions, questions, or comments you'd like to share with him, please send them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's Doc, letter G, at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Now back to Schizophrenia Community Radio. Welcome back to our listeners to Schizophrenia Community Radio and Dr. Michael Elaf. Our topic is early access to treatment for schizophrenia. Now, Michael, let's talk about challenges that arise when access to treatment for schizophrenia and psychotic disorders is delayed instead of early. So, first question, Michael, what do you see as the most challenging of the challenges to recovery of individuals living with schizophrenia and psychotic disorders whose treatment is delayed instead of early? Michael? There is an a bit of a controversy in the scientific research literature about whether or not having a prolonged period of untreated psychosis is damaging to the brain, whether it's neurotoxic, meaning harmful to the brain. Um, But there can be no real question about whether it is sociotoxic, whether it's damaging to function. If you take people in their late teens, early, mid to late 20s, and you chop a chunk of life out, like an individual who spent, who dropped out of high school because he'd become psychotic and who essentially spent eight years in his parents' basement. During the years between 16 or 17 and 24, 25, no education, no socializing, no activities, no friendships, no dating, no romance, no marriage. All of the developmental tasks of adult life are chopped out as a big chunk in his development. In the 1970s, we first developed this concept called DUP, Duration of Untreated Psychosis. The time between the onset of clear, active psychotic symptoms hallucinations, delusions, disorganized thought, disorganized behavior, the start of psychotic symptoms and the start of treatment. How long was it and did it make any difference? In a major research study done in the United Kingdom, what they discovered was that if you divided people by one year, those who got treatment 
whose illness, whose psychosis was less than a year long when they started treatment, and those where it was more than a year long, there was a very, very striking and dramatic difference in terms of long-term outcomes. Symptom control, functional outcomes, independent functioning, returning to some kind of a life with activity, with work or volunteer work, with relationships, with friendships, with dating, that it made a huge difference in people's lives whether they got treatment early or treatment late. I'm going to take a moment to give two examples that are uh, actual clinical examples, but they're disguised a little bit for, for privacy reasons. Um, one illustrates the disaster of prolonged, untreated psychosis, the man who spent eight years in his parents' basement. After eight years, he had some kind of a minor physical illness. I think he had a sore ear or a sore throat, went to the family doctor um, to get himself checked out. The family doctor did something that often busy family doctors don't have a chance to do, which is to say, what are you doing these days? How's your life? And the guy said, well, I don't do very much. I really stay home all the time. And the doctor said, oh, why is that? And the man answered in terms that made it very, very clear that he had a strange set of beliefs about his body and his body's functioning that caused him to withdraw from the world for eight consecutive years. So the family doctor, not unreasonably, thought, this is a man with a psychiatric illness. We should send him to psychiatry. It was very, very clear that he had a psychosis that we would diagnose as schizophrenia and that he'd been ill for all these years. We tried to get him started on treatment and recovery and rehabilitation, but he was so locked into his illness that we really didn't get anywhere. Other case example. A young man, 19-year-old, told his parents that the voices were bothering him. They said, what voices? He said, the voices coming through the walls and coming through the floor so they immediately asked him, oh, have you been doing drugs? He said, well, yes, he had smoked some marijuana. Ah, his parents said, it's because of drugs. We'll take you to the doctor. They took him to the doctor, who happened to be somebody, a, a, a pediatrician, because it's the only doctor he had ever seen. This particular pediatrician was very familiar with psychotic illness and schizophrenia, not from his own practice, because he'd only seen two people before this in 25 years of practice with the early onset of schizophrenia. But he happened to be the doctor who did the physical exams on all of the male adolescent patients in the hospital, so he'd seen lots of psychotic teenagers. And what he immediately realized, this is not marijuana, this is schizophrenia. Mm. On a Monday, he phoned a colleague of mine who said, no, this is not for adolescent psychiatry, he's 19, call Michael Eleff. He called me on Tuesday. I saw the man on Friday, started him on medication on Friday. He had had active psychotic symptoms for about two months at that point. He responded very well to medication. He returned to university. He completed two university degrees, and he has worked full-time. It happens that I still see him. I see him about twice a year um, just to check in and to renew his prescription he works full-time in his profession. He lives with his girlfriend. He's not so sure he wants to marry her. Um, he doesn't really want to have children, in part 
because he thinks it might be difficult for him in terms of his health. But he's really done very, very well. That's the strength of early identification and early intervention in psychosis. The earlier case is the weakness and the tragedy of a duration of untreated psychosis that goes on for years. The average length of time that people with schizophrenia are psychotic before they get treatment used to be between one and two years. We have worked very hard in North America and the UK and in Australia in particular, most particularly in Australia, which is really the heart of clinical work and research in early psychosis, we've worked very, very hard to try and shorten that, to respond quickly, to respond actively, to start treatment, and to get people back on the road to recovery rather than let them rot in the basement. Michael, I'm going to stop you there because I want to move to the next question, but you've made the point very, very clear about the importance of uh, early treatment on the road to recovery. Now, Michael, next question for you. What do you see as the most challenging of the challenges to mental health care services for individuals living with schizophrenia and psychotic disorders whose treatment is actually delayed? Michael? One of the central challenges and, and, and something that I alluded to when I talked about the man with the eight-year history is how do you engage somebody in treatment when they've been living with a psychotic illness for so long that it's become their reality? It's become kind of normal to them. Um, one of the challenges of mental illness in general is that it is the part of us that appreciates, that evaluates, that decides and problem solves it is that part which is the brain which is impaired by the illness. If you've got a problem with your ankle, the part of you that notices the problem, which is upstairs, is not affected by the ankle sore, soreness. And you say, well, you know, could this be broken? It's very swollen. I better get it x-rayed, blah, blah, blah. Um, the challenge for mental health services is how do you connect with somebody who has a psychotic illness, and who believes what he believes. Neither you nor I, I'm wearing black shoes at the moment. If somebody said to me, I want you to take medication because you have this idea that you have black shoes, I would think they were out to lunch, and there's no way I would take medication, especially because the medication might and probably would have at least some side effects because I don't have a theory or a belief that I have black shoes. I have an absolute certainty. And people who've lived with long-term psychosis, with delusions, with hallucinations of one sort or another, it becomes so normal and so entrenched that it's very, very difficult for them to give it up. And it's very difficult for them to accept that this is an illness that needs treatment. Now, let me just ask you a kind of supplementary to that. Um, it's the case, I believe, that some individuals 
in the situation you're talking about, I've got they've got so used to the problem, um, they are apt to go off their medications and maybe even switch to street drugs. First of all, is that true? And secondly, is that the kind of thing that has to be reckoned with um, when people have learned to live with the challenges that are associated with the illness? Michael? Well, there are two different parts to the question. One has to do with people going off medication and what we call insight, which is the recognition that you do have a problem that you need to deal with. You also mentioned the issue about street drugs. Um, people don't switch to street drugs. People with psychotic illnesses are extremely vulnerable to abusing street drugs and alcohol. Um, marijuana is absolutely deadly for people with psychotic illnesses. It may or may not be a relatively harmless recreational drug for the majority of the population, but for people who have trouble with reality testing, people with psychotic illness like schizophrenia, marijuana in particular, also stimulants, cocaine, hallucinogenics, ecstasy, these are absolute poison. Um, excess alcohol, almost as bad. Um, the difficulty with getting people to take medication is I take medication for a physical illness that I have because I recognize that I have the illness. I recognize that the medication is helpful and also because I trust the doctor who prescribes it for me. If I don't trust, I don't recognize the illness, um, and the medication gives me side effects, I'm not going to take it. There was a very interesting paper published about 20 years ago where they asked people, why is it that individuals living with schizophrenia stop their medication, stop the antipsychotics, stop taking medication? So they asked two groups. They asked psychiatrists, and they asked individuals with lived experience, individuals living with schizophrenia. The psychiatrists all said it's a lack of insight, it's poor judgment, it's denial of illness. And the patients all said it's side effects, side effects, and side effects. And right. if you add the two things together, I think you get a more complete picture. Yes, it's a problem with insight, but it's also a problem with side effects. These right. are powerful right. medications and they have a lot of side effects and we need to deal with them, we need to educate people about them, we need to manage them as best we can. Very clear. Now, we've come to the point where we, we're going to take the break, so we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Dr. Michael Eleff. You're listening to Schizophrenia Community Radio on the Voice America Variety Channel, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Tune in each week for Monica Phillips and powerful conversations. This is a thought-provoking show for business people, leaders, and entrepreneurs. We'll feature today's thought leaders and industry trendsetters from across several locations and industries. Give yourself permission to be inspired and live a fulfilling life. 
Be sure to listen to Powerful Conversations live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Hospitality News Network for a look inside the travel, hotel, restaurant, and hospitality industry. Host Stephen Nicole and his guests will teach you everything you've wanted to know about this fascinating industry. Who knows? You might just want to change your own career path. At the very least, you might end up being a preferred customer. The Hospitality News Network is broadcast live every Monday at 12 noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Schizophrenia Community Radio with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any suggestions, questions, or comments you'd like to share with him, please send them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's doc, letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Now back to Schizophrenia Community Radio. Welcome back to our listeners to Schizophrenia Community Radio and Dr. Michael Ela. Our topic is early access to treatment for schizophrenia. Now, Michael, in the previous segment, you identified challenges to recovery when access to treatment is delayed instead of early. So now let's talk about the ways in which early treatment helps overcome these challenges. Now, the first question then is, in what ways do you see early treatment helping overcome the most challenging of the challenges to recovery of individuals who are living with schizophrenia and psychotic disorders? Michael? The critical issue in recovery from early psychosis is to get people back out in the world, to try to return them to functioning, whether that's school or work or training um, or social activities or leisure activities or the why, to try to get people moving again when they've, in a sense, come to a grinding halt in the context of psychotic illness. This is also a challenge for the family. How much do we push him to go out there and do things? How much do we leave him alone and let him have his time staring at the television or the computer screen for hours and hours on end and not going out in the world? And it's a very difficult balance. The, The goal of treatment is not symptom suppression the way we thought in the 1970s. The goal of treatment is quality of life. And quality of life means functioning. And functioning means the same thing for people with schizophrenia as it means for everybody else. It means interpersonal relationships, social relationships, activities, interests, leisure, and work. Whether work is study or work is volunteer work or work is a job, whether it's part-time or full-time. What Freud said is work and love. That's the way you know somebody's doing okay, work and love. Yeah, Yeah, very good. Now, I'm going to ask you, it's a similar question, basically the same, but different context. What ways do you see early treatment 
helping overcome the most challenging of the challenges to mental health care services for the individuals who are living with schizophrenia and psychotic disorders. Michael? For my program, where we work with adults with schizophrenia, and we are not the specific early psychosis program, we have one, and I'm very connected to it, but I'm not in it, um, for us, the challenge is the secondary disability associated with the illness. Uh, the old joke used to be that the surgeon would say, well, the operation was a success, but the patient died. Yes. Treatment um, is not a success unless the patient returns to some kind of reasonable quality of life according to his or her own standards and values and beliefs. Um, the struggle that we have is we get there too little and too late. The early years of an illness like schizophrenia are critical. We usually say the first five years of illness from the time of the onset of illness and diagnosis, the first five years, that's the time when you really need the active push because if you don't get it, it's hard to play catch-up five years or ten years down the road. Um, the other issue is education. Education, education, education for the patient, for the family, for the care providers, for the support community. Um, programs like the Manitoba Schizophrenia Society or the Schizophrenia Society of Canada that provide information and support because I talk about treatment and it sometimes sounds as if I equate treatment and medication. Medication is not treatment for schizophrenia. Medication is very often a part of treatment for schizophrenia. But treatment for schizophrenia is rehabilitation, support, recovery, education, family support, supportive housing, supportive work, um, addressing problems with substance abuse disorders. That's the range of treatment. And yes, medication, but not only. Right. Now, you've mentioned families a couple of times uh, in this segment. So let me ask you about families. So in what ways do you see early treatment helping overcome the most challenging of the challenges to family caregivers of individuals living with schizophrenia and psychotic disorders? And perhaps as a sort of preliminary to answering that question, uh, maybe you'd like to identify what you see as the most as the most challenging of the challenges for family caregivers. Michael? I think the most challenging problem for families is despair. I have a very, very vivid image in my mind of meeting with a family, young man with first episode psychosis with early schizophrenia, I'm meeting with him and his parents who are educated, professional people, not, not healthcare professionals. Um, and I'm talking to them about the fact that their son has developed a psychotic illness. And the mother said to me, could this be schizophrenia? And I said, yes, that was one possibility um, for 
the correct diagnosis of the kind of psychotic illness that he had. And she pulled back her face as if she was going to scream, and her face froze in this sort of terribly pained expression. And I have this image in my mind of what her face looked like. And the challenge for the family is, does this mean that my son's life is over? When I used to give a talk about early psychosis, one of the slides that I showed, it was before PowerPoint, so it was an actual um, 35 millimeter slide. It was a picture of a baby in a crib. And the baby is lifting his head and he's got a great big goofy grin. It happens to have been one of my children. And what I said is, you know, families have babies and they imagine, oh, my son might grow up to do this, my daughter might grow up to do that, to study this, to become that, to marry, to bring me grandchildren. You have this whole fantasy scenario in your life, in your mind, as a parent of a baby. Nobody factors into that, that in the late teens, early to mid-twenties, my son or my daughter develops schizophrenia and has to live with the challenges of long-term, serious, persistent, major mental illness. That's the main challenge for families, is the devastating effects of knowing that your child lives with schizophrenia and is going to be living with schizophrenia, and some of the things that you hoped for may not be realistic in the future. I have a, a very, very bright talented um, young woman patient who lives with schizophrenia, whose original career plan was to go to medical school. She's science-oriented. She's smarter than I am. I say that not to be humble, but to be accurate. And when she became ill, it became clear that medical school was not in the cards. So she has taken a different educational path and is now working on a master's in an area of science. Um, that she had to make an adjustment and she had to accept a change. For the family as well, there are adjustments and acceptance that can be very, very bitter pills to swallow. And those adjustments are part of the recovery process. Is that right? It is absolutely correct that the adjustment to living with the illness is a part of the early process of recovery. Okay, I didn't want this, but I got it. I'm going to have to deal with it. And now what? What can I do? We used to say to people in the 1970s, well, you know, the best he can hope for is to cope and to stay out of hospital. And so people sat in chairs and stared at television and smoked cigarettes. It's a mistake to think that in those circumstances, people are even watching television. Because if you ask them, what did you do last night? They say, well, I watch television. Oh, can you give me the name of one program? And the answer is no, they can't, because they're not watching television. They're staring into space. That was where we were at 40 years ago, and that's what we've moved away from. The, there's a saying about recovery, which is that people will rise or fall to your expectations. If you expect them to be profoundly disabled and non-functional, they'll do that. 
if you expect them to do well and to recover and to restore functioning, well, they'll do that too. That one of the challenges for me as a psychiatrist working with people with schizophrenia and their families is that some of my colleagues think that the work that I do is useless and hopeless, that we're basically warehousing the disabled, mentally ill, the way we were in the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s. It ain't true. I have patients who return to school, who return to work, return to relationships, return to life. And my... Rick, may I just Sorry. interrupt you with a quick sure. insert question? And are recovering in the way that you defined recovery? That's right, those people. Is that right? They're recovering in the way that I defined recovery, but more importantly, they're recovering in the way that they define recovery. One of my patients who had several years of, of homelessness and really extremely severe illness, we were able to get him back on track. And then what did he do? He met a woman, and they've now moved in together. And he refers to her as his wife, which in the common law she is. And when he comes here for his appointment, she's always there with him in the waiting room. And I always say hello to both of them. Yeah. Yeah. Now, it's time once more for the break. So I'm going to interrupt now and we'll take the break now. But we are coming back. So this is Dr. Gordon Adley and my guest is Dr. Michael Eleff. You're listening to Schizophrenia Community Radio on the Voice America Variety Channel, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace to speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Schizophrenia Community Radio with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any suggestions, questions, or comments you'd like to share with him, please send them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's doc, letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. 
Now back to Schizophrenia Community Radio. Welcome back to our listeners to Schizophrenia Community Radio and Dr. Michael Elef. Our topic is early access to treatment for schizophrenia. Michael, what more would you like to do to promote early treatment for schizophrenia and psychotic disorders? Michael? We talk often about the need for increased resources, for more clinicians, for more clinical time, for more buildings, but we need something much more fundamental than that. We need an early warning system. I've had the opportunity in the past to speak to high school school guidance teachers because sometimes schizophrenia begins during the high school years. And those are the frontline people, the guidance counselors, the vice principals, the principals, the school teachers who see adolescents who are very early on. And they're the ones who can blow the whistle and get people involved in treatment. One of the principles of early psychosis programs is that they take referrals from anybody. You can self-refer. Your your family can refer you. Your family doctor can refer you. Your teacher can refer you. And you need to be seen fast and actively. You don't want to say, well, you know, this sounds like it might be schizophrenia. I'll see you in March for an assessment. March is six months from now. It's 100 years. You need to get there quick. You need to have resources to get there quick and to see people. But you also need early identification. Case finding is what it's called. Um, The early psychosis program here is called EPIS, E-P-P-I-S, which stands for Early Psychosis Prevention and Intervention Service. And prevention, at least prevention of complex, long, difficult, untreated psychosis and stalled recovery, that is what we're aiming for, is to try to get there early and fast and actively. Right. Now, the things that you've just been describing, who do you think should do those things that you've been talking about? In other words, you've said what needs to be done. Who should do the things? Everybody should do those things. Parents, social workers, teachers, police officers, family physicians, pediatricians, everybody who sees young people should have psychosis as a part of the differential diagnosis. I asked myself, you know, I talked earlier about a family where the, the son was in the basement for eight years. You could say, what were they thinking? What were they doing? Why were the family paralyzed? And who could they go to? Who could they call? Where's the public education? Where's the awareness? Where's the... Um, index of suspicion. These are illnesses that eat the lives of young adults when they're not treated. They destroy life. And the earlier you can get in there, the less destruction there's going to be. That's very, very clear. There's a huge difference in outcome between people who get early treatment and people who get late treatment and people who get no treatment. I have seen people who've been psychotic for 20 and 30 years with no treatment. That is a terrible human tragedy. 
Now, right up at the level of our politicians and the governments who govern us and run our healthcare systems, how good or otherwise is the recognition of the things, those principles that you've just been laying out that everybody should take notice? Michael? There's a difference between recognition and resourcing. Because the Mental Health Commission of Canada has done wonderful work and published wonderful documents and wonderful reports and advocacy and recommendations for increased services. The reality is that part of it has to do with stigma and discrimination, that people with cancer have cancer, people with heart disease have heart disease, people with psychiatric illness, with psychosis, with schizophrenia have like that that we don't want to talk about it because we're uncomfortable, because we discriminate, because we stigmatize the mentally ill, because we're afraid of people with psychosis. Um, governments do not fund mental health services and mental health education and mental health research in anything like a proportionate way to the way they fund treatment for cancer and heart disease. It's not because I'm opposed to treatment and research in heart disease and cancer. It's because there is a discrimination at an economic and structural and systemic level against the mentally ill and the families of people with mental illness. Right. Now, in the few moments that remain, I'm going to ask you what is in effect a very loaded question, and it's this. What we're doing now, Michael, as you well know, is recording an episode in which we've discussed a topic that's really, really important for the schizophrenia community. The episode will be saved in an archive. Now, do you think that having more discussions like this one in the archive would be helpful in promoting the early treatment and all the awareness and understanding that you're talking about? Um, or if you think it wouldn't be helpful, please say why not. Michael. I think it is both helpful and not helpful. I think anything that we can do to increase awareness and public education is important and valuable. I've dedicated my career to that, among other things, to getting the word out there. But um, it's very, very difficult to change attitudes, particularly in terms of things like stigma and discrimination. The research that's going on now, among other places, at the University of Calgary into anti-stigma campaigns says it isn't information alone right. that changes people's attitude toward the mentally ill. It's lived experience. It's contact with people. I used to go to the high schools together with a patient living with schizophrenia to talk to high school students. And they were interested in what I had to say, but they were really interested in him and his experience. And right. many of them would say, you know, we've never talked to somebody with mental illness before. Michael, I'm going to have to stop you there because the tyranny of time is uh, hanging over our heads and they're going to cut us off if we don't stop. Because okay. I really do want to say thank you for all that you explained, for your insights, your opinions. And I want to wish you particular particular success in the kind of things that you're talking about in relation to recovery and families. Now, if listeners want to send comments or ask questions, here's the email address to use, docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, please join us. 
for our next episode, Psychosis, Psychosis, Causes and Treatment. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us for Schizophrenia Community Radio with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Thank you for supporting Schizophrenia Community Radio. We hope you, too, have gained strength. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 